Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Second wave sell-off. Rising coronavirus cases and downbeat forecasts hit markets. Issue recognition. Amazon suspends sales of facial recognition technology to police forces and Operation Hope. We speak to the man with a plan for saving middle America. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, where we discuss, as always, some of the big challenges and the risks facing the global economy. And here in America, those things are front and center. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for global markets at this moment. And you can see it red across the board. That's the name of the game at this moment. I think global markets reflecting caution. We've got Dow futures off by more than 3%. Tech stocks are in the red. Europe down around 3%. Asia weaker too. Japan's Nikkei closing down by almost 3%. Nothing, of course, when you compare to recent gains. The major U.S. averages are up by some 40% or more from their March lows. That dramatic rebound in no way reflects the economic reality being faced for millions of families. That message underscored by the latest jobless claims data here in the United States. Another one and a half million American workers filing for first-time benefits last week. That brings the total to over 44 million people since mid-March. The number of people actually collecting benefits remains stuck at over 20 million people. Fed Chair Jay Powell saying yesterday he fears that millions of these jobs may be gone for good. And new Fed projections show rate hikes off the table until 2023 at the earliest. That gives you an indication of how long recovery might take. A sobering assessment. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we say it, you and I often, the stock market is not the US economy. And again, when we look at the data that we get today, that reflected well and truly. And I think Jay Powell brought that home again yesterday too. I think you're just so right. I mean, Main Street is seeing something it has never experienced before. Millions of people in a matter of weeks out of a job and a health crisis at the very same time. So this is a really unique situation. There's no playbook for it at all. And this snapback that you've seen in the stock market uh, this early summer really does not reflect the way people are feeling on Main Street and the uncertainty among so many of those people who have lost their jobs. When you look at the people who were working in the beginning of March, you know, the pre-pandemic workforce, 27% of those people have filed for the first time for unemployment benefits. And you're so right to point out that continuing claims number, 20.9 
1.9 million people continuing to get jobless claims. We want to see that number start to trend lower. That's probably the better indicator of where we're going um, in the economy and the jobs market. And that's just stubbornly high here. When I look at some of the comments from the states, you know, they're allowed to sort of give comments to the Labor Department about what they're seeing. They are seeing fewer layoffs in places like retail, healthcare, social assistance, and in manufacturing in some states. But overall, one and a half million first-time unemployment benefits filed in one week. That is something I can't even believe. Three months ago, I never would have thought I'd say that sentence. And that has become routine now. Yeah, it's a routine anguish. I think every uh, every Thursday when we see these numbers come through. It's interesting coming into this, though. A lot of people off the back of that jobs number and the net two and a half million jobs that were regained in May to to the surprise of many, suggesting that actually these numbers now are are sort of backward looking because we have no real sense of how many of these people that filed for first time claims are actually going to be reabsorbed back into the jobs market. And I think actually that's a myopic way of looking at this because this number, when we're talking about more than 44 million people, job insecure in some way, may have lost a job, lost hours, that gives you an accurate reflection of the scale of this crisis, if nothing else. And the scale is just enormous. I mean, you know, some of the surveys have found that up to half of American families have suffered some loss in income over the past three months due to the the virus. I mean, half of American families, that's simply astonishing. And, And Jay Powell very clearly said, until the consumer feels confident and will go out and spend, that will hold back the recovery. So you've got you know, less uh, buying power, and maybe that's psychological, or maybe that's simply because they actually have less money, uh, or, or they're afraid to go out and spend, or they've just changed their behaviors. Until we get into a more steady rhythm, I think the, it's you know, the, the chicken and the egg, right? I mean, can the job market recover if the consumer doesn't feel good? And can the consumer feel good if the job market doesn't recover? Absolutely, and particularly at a time when we're seeing, what, 12 American states seeing an increase in hospitalizations for for COVID-19. That sense and the fear of a second wave sort of filtering in, I think, to some of the caution, that the accurate caution that we're seeing reflected in the stock market, at least for today. Yeah, today is going to be a kind of an ugly start, I think, in the, in the mm. next 45, in the next 25 minutes or so. Uh, but it has been a good run, as you rightly point out. It's been a 40 percent run since the lows in March. So, you know, these things don't go straight up for sure. No, V-shaped recovery for stock markets, feeling very L-shaped at the moment, down and then across for uh, the real economy, which I think is the key. Don't mistake the two. Christine Romans, thank you so nice much for that. You. Now, as protests against police brutality in the United States continue, the Trump administration is reportedly considering an executive order on police reform, though it's unclear what that might contain. John Harwood is at the White House for us, and hopefully you can shed some light, John. The president, 10 hours ago, tweeting the simple words, law and order. We get that part. Everyone wants law and order, but that doesn't mean we can't see reform, too. That's right, but that's not where the president's instincts lie, uh, Julia. The president's political strategy has always been grounded in racial division. It continues to be. Now, he's going to travel to Dallas today uh, to uh, uh, sit down at a white evangelical church. That is the political equivalent of the underground bunker at the White House. Uh, It's a safe space for the president. Uh, White evangelicals are his strongest individual group of supporters. 
even though he's lost some altitude with them lately, still an 80% approval kind of situation. The president may at that session outline some of the reforms that he might accept if Congress passes them. He may uh, indicate uh, what uh, elements of an executive order might be uh, on the same subject. But we know from the president's summary rejection of even debating the idea of renaming uh, military bases named after uh, Confederate generals uh, that he is not interested in that uh, reconciliation kind of message. Conservative institutions like the U.S. military and NASCAR uh, are trying to, scrambling to keep up with public opinion and engaging in that debate. The president says, no, I don't want to. He just tweeted a few minutes ago that the protesters that uh, the uh, federal officers fired on with tear gas and rubber bullets last week were anarchists and uh, agitators and Antifa rather than people uh, peacefully protesting the aftermath of George Floyd's death. So the president, uh, who is uh, trailing Joe Biden in the polls by a large margin, uh, clearly sees his um, uh, political future as well as his own just natural instincts in division rather than unity. And that's what uh, the former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis condemned him for last week. Absolutely. And uh, so many challenges, just one of many here, to your point, uh, a public consensus now that is pushing for reform. And that shift has happened incredibly quickly. The economic challenges that the claims data once again underscores today. And then the final thing, the data on COVID-19, two million cases here in the United States. But perhaps more importantly, as I I mentioned with, with Christine Romans there, 12 states now where we're seeing rising hospitalizations. There's multiple things that he needs to address and, well, Julia, and that tackle. Ju- that just shows you how deeply the president's gone in on that uh, uh, strategy that I talked about. Uh, the uh, economy is a mess, but we did have some good jobs numbers uh, a week ago. Uh, but he's all but forgotten the issue of coronavirus, which, of course, could throw economic progress into reverse if we get a sustained spike in the fall. But the president's not even paying attention to that. His vice president, Mike Pence, uh, last night tweeted out a picture uh, of his campaign staff all uh, uh, without masks on, densely packed in, uh, completely heedless, even though Mike Pence uh, heads the coronavirus task force of the Uh, public safety implications of conveying that message. So uh, the White House uh, has got one idea that the president's pushing, uh, and it's one that is at odds with the uh, uh, evolution, very rapid evolution that you mentioned, of public opinion in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Yes, three rolling crises, at least, none of which are going away. John Harwood at the White House for us there. Thank you so much for that. Amazon, meanwhile, suspending use of its facial recognition technology by the police force for a year. The company is calling on Congress to strengthen regulation amid criticism that the technology exhibits racial bias. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, it's not often that a giant tech company like this calls for greater regulation. The ethics surrounding this technology key, and it's not a new issue. The criticisms of racial bias in the use of this technology, but suddenly Amazon taking a stand. Yeah, Julia, interesting that they're doing this given that they've faced criticism backlash internally. Uh, There was several shareholder resolutions uh, last year, backlash from civil rights groups, from academics who published uh, studies showing that there is inherent bias in these systems, particularly affecting people of color. But now they're saying, as you say, 
We're suspending this for one year. They say uh, that the reason is that they are now advocating that governments should put in place stronger regulations, and they think a year should be enough time for Congress to enact policies around this. They say given the momentum in recent days, we know that House Democrats, for example, put forward a bill on Monday on broader police reform that included a measure on limits on use of facial recognition technology when it comes to body camera footage. So there is momentum from Congress on this. Amazon, though, did not say that they were going to do anything themselves uh, in this very short statement to, to try to improve the, the accuracy of their, uh, of their product or, 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 or test it for bias or anything like that. And this comes, they're not the only ones, Julia, after IBM on Monday said that it was exiting facial recognition products and called on Congress for, for stronger policies uh, to, to tackle the issue of bias uh, in this and accountability when it comes to its use in policing. So there's definitely momentum uh, around this, but this is the strongest statement from Amazon yet on, on what they're going to do to try to tackle this issue. It's interesting to look at some of the political response as well, because the House Committee on Oversight and Reform have obviously been looking into this. One of those members, Representative Jimmy Gomez, said of this announcement from Amazon, they're saying that we've been asking Congress to put guardrails on the use of this technology, but every time we tried to get more and more data, they stalled, and we had to have hearings to make movement on the issue. Amazon clearly not here to defend themselves, but... If you want to see regulation and want to work together on regulation, you've got to provide the information too. Yeah, Julia, uh, Amazon have a limited list, it's interesting to note, of customers of, of AWS's recognition with a K uh, software, and that includes the Washington County Sheriff's Office uh, in Oregon. But, but it's a limited list. We don't know how many other uh, police or law enforcement departments uh, are using this. And that same representative, Jimmy Gomez, says uh, also on Twitter, There's, this is a good start, but there are lots of unanswered questions on, on who they sold that technology to uh, and how it's being used. I think the problem here is that the sable door was left open, the horse is already bolted, uh, and now Congress is trying to catch it. Facial recognition is already out there. Amazon's technology is already being used. And I think playing catch up here is going to be extremely difficult when it comes to regulating this. This is such a great point, Claire. Trust in technology, not necessarily about the technology itself. It's how the technology is used. Such an important point. Thank you, Claire Sebastian. All right, on to Japan's richest man now, who's told CNN that for all the huge challenges right now where there's pain... There's also possibility. Tadashi Yanai is the CEO of Fast Retailing, which owns Uniqlo, and he spoke exclusively to our Kaori and Joji about life after COVID-19 and the situation that the United States faces at this moment. If we kept our stores closed, the whole city will die. It was much worse in China, where we closed 390 stores, but we kept 300 open and took excellent preventive measures. Not a single employee was infected. That's why I was confident we could do it. Someone needs to have the courage to go first. But this is a once-in-a-century crisis. What has changed at your company or what needs to change? We are looking at our performance and why we matter. As a company, we are asking ourselves why we exist. The biggest crises can be our biggest opportunities. Does fast retailing need to let go of jobs? We are a Japanese company, so we value jobs. I think it's the most important thing. Maybe things are different in the U.S., 
but I don't think there is a single company that deals well over the long run by cutting jobs. Instead, I think we can overcome this by creating value and working in a way that justifies keeping the jobs we have. How much damage, uh, real damage, have you suffered uh, from the protests in the United States? And are you concerned this is going to be a, a long-term phenomenon? We were hit in Philadelphia, Denver, L.A., San Francisco, and even New York. It shows how devastated the U.S. spirit is. The political situation is untenable. It's not working. They should have thought about what would occur once something like that happened, after a long period of keeping everyone locked in. The very image of America is breaking. I truly hope that this will have a positive impact in the long term, just like the civil rights movement did. Does this mean that you will shift more faster online? I think that the more we move online, the more we will have to go back to basics and make our physical stores relevant. Otherwise, we won't sell. All right, still ahead on First Move, a big meal deal, the takeaway takeover that could be history in the making and the future in their hands. We speak to the CEO who's devoted his life to empowering low-income communities through education. It's called Operation Hope. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where we're looking at a sharp pullback at the market open today, adding to the losses seen for the Dow and the S&P for the last two sessions. Tech stocks, as you can see, also under pressure after the Nasdaq closed above that 10,000 level for the first time in Wednesday's session. We've also got pressure on travel-related stocks, too. They're set to tumble after recent sharp gains. In fact, futures have been sharply lower all morning on new concerns about the economic and the health risks from COVID-19 fears, of course, surrounding a potential second wave, while we also saw an additional one and a half million people filing for first-time benefits last week, continuing claims, which measures the amount of people actually receiving benefits, remain stuck at over 20 million individuals. The Fed making it clear once again yesterday that it's 100% committed to getting the jobs market back to full strength. Jay Powell sees rate hikes off the table through 2022. He also noted the suffering of minority workers reliant on service sector jobs that have been disproportionately hit by COVID-19. Mark Zandi joins us now. He's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to have you with us. Just square what we saw today with the ongoing escalation in initial jobless claims with the data that we got on Friday showing two and a half million workers net coming back into the workforce in May. Sure, Julia. So the uh, claims for unemployment insurance measure the number of people who are losing their jobs, getting laid off and then asking for help. Uh, the, uh, that does not account for the folks that are being rehired. So as businesses reopen across the country, as they did during the month of May, uh, people got hired back. So the, the job number uh, reflects the net of that, the number of people that are getting laid off less than the number of people who got hired. And unfortunately, in the month of May, there were more hires than people who got fired. So there's still a lot of people losing jobs, but fortunately, with businesses reopening, we're getting some hirings. And right now, 
uh, we're starting to see some improvement in the labor market. Still, you know, we have a very deep hole here, a long way to dig out, get back to anything anyone would consider normal, but at least we've started digging out. Right, we're on the first uh, steps on the path to recovery of some sort, but even you were skeptical after after these Friday's numbers saying that, look, given the noise level and the shift and the transition that we're seeing, some of those jobs could be revised away. Just give us a sense of what and if your view has changed on where we are by year end. That gives us some time to recover no. and reopen. Uh, thank you for the question, Julia. Uh, no, my, my view based on the May job number, which was better than anticipated has about the rest of the year has not changed. All I think that happened was businesses opened a bit faster than anticipated. When I say a bit, I mean a week or two, and that makes all the difference in uh, these uh, estimates of jobs. So it just pulled forward job creation that we would have gotten in June and July into May. But the total number of jobs that are going to be created here as businesses reopen hasn't changed in my view. We're going to get half of the jobs we lost uh, uh, back in, uh, in March and April back in the next few months. And then on the other side of Labor Day, I think things go sideways. Uh, I don't think the economy goes anywhere fast until we get on the other side of the pandemic. And that means unemployment is still going to remain very high. So the Federal Reserve came out with a forecast yesterday, said by the end of this year, the unemployment rate is going to be just south of 10 percent. That's precisely equal to my forecast. I think that's roughly where we're going to be. And, And that's pretty bad. I mean, in the very worst of the financial crisis back a little over 10 years ago, the unemployment rate peaked at exactly 10%. So we're just getting back to that pretty ignominiously bad number. Do you think the biggest danger here is some form of complacency, particularly on the part of Congress here, perhaps thinking that, look, we're, we've seen the worst now, we're regaining jobs, things will be OK. And Jay Powell seemed to do his best yesterday to deflate that expectation as best he could. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I do worry about that. Uh, you know, I don't think lawmakers, uh, Congress and the administration should uh, take the message here that the economy is off and running, that we've got this V-shaped straight line back to where we were kind of economic uh, recovery dead ahead of us. That's not what's going to happen here. This is going to be a slog. And in fact, I would go so far to say if Congress and administration can't come up with some more support for the economy, you know, more help to the unemployed workers, uh, more aid to state and local governments to fill their budget holes because they are massively laying off their workforce, uh, then the odds of going back into recession are pretty high, even if we don't experience a second wave. Now, fortunately, we heard some pretty good things coming out of the administration, particularly Secretary of Treasury, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, seems to be coming around to the idea that this economy needs more help. And, and it, obviously, I'll, I'll point out the obvious. This is a presidential election year, and the politics would suggest that they would get it together and and pass some more help for the economy. Yes, that should deflate any skepticism on the Republican side of surely providing more support here, too. If we just go back to what we saw on Friday as well and the net job gains, is that also an argument that the $600 a week bump up that we've seen in unemployment benefits is not having a significant disincentive effect of, of preventing people coming back to the workforce because in many cases we believe they are actually better off on unemployment insurance than they might be working. How worried about that are you and how do you get around that issue if it exists? Yeah, great point. I, yeah, there's no evidence, uh, at least not in the jobs numbers, that uh, the $600 uh, bump in UI benefits is having any significant disincentive effects. I mean, I'm sure you can come up with, you know, anecdotes and examples. I'm sure there's some folks out there that aren't going to go back to work because they're going to get paid a little bit more for a month or two on UI. 
But I don't think that adds up to anything that you know, has a broader macroeconomic uh, effect. So uh, I, I think that is uh, a stretch. I, I don't really think that's an argument. Now, having said that, I do think going forward, as the economy begins to improve, we do want to reduce the, those amount of benefits to make sure that people do go back to work as jobs uh, you know, become more available. So I don't think it's, been a, it's a problem at this point, but, but we do need to think about that uh, as we move forward and as the economy continues to improve. Yeah, I'm clearly showing my bias here, all politics aside, that more support is required and there are no excuses here because this is, yeah. this is a long story of recovery. Um, Mark, great to have you with us, as always. Mark Zandi, Chief Economist so much. for Moody's Analytics, great to have you with us. A quick look once again as we head towards the market open. We are seeing some significant red across the board, as you can see the Dow approaching losses of some three and a half percent pre-market doesn't counteract the 40 percent plus gains that we've seen since the lows but some concern here about the economics but also about the risks i think of a second wave plenty more discussion to come after this stay with us the opening bell next first move i'm julia chatley that is the opening bell this morning and i have to say i see red across the board the focus for today at least the health and economic uncertainties facing global economies fed chair jay powell said yesterday that he is cautiously optimistic that the jobs market has hit a bottom here in the united states but the latest jobless claims numbers show continued pain and uncertainty for u.s workers at the very least an additional one and a half million people making fresh claims for jobless benefits last week. Continuing claims, those that are already getting benefits still stuck above 20 million workers. Today's sell-off pushing the Nasdaq below that 10,000 level once again. Amazon and Apple are falling from record highs. Tesla, which rallied to more than $1,000 a share yesterday, is pulling back from record levels too, though those shares are still up some 140% this year, most recently on hopes for mass production of its new electric truck. Paul Monica is here with more on the market reaction. Paul, great to see you. Not discounting the, what, 40 percentage point plus gains from the lows here. Some of the uncertainties here taking a bit of a shine off what's being priced by stock market investors, and that's a V-shaped recovery dramatic recovery. Exactly. Yeah, I think investors had maybe gotten ahead of themselves expecting this V-shaped recovery based on the notion that we have all this stimulus coming from the Fed as well as Congress and that maybe the COVID-19 pandemic, things would start to diminish as we head into the uh, latter part of the year and so many states reopening. But now, with reports of all of these new cases in a lot of states, you do have these worries about a second wave. And I think given how rapidly the market has run, the V-shaped recovery, I, I hate to say it, but I think it's a myth. A lot of people I talk to have talked about you know, the so-called Nike-shaped recovery, where it's going to be a more gradual move up, uh, you know, kind of like a U-shape instead of a V, and now we have to worry about the W shape. Are we going to double dip? I think the key point for investors, though, is that Jay Powell stands ready, and he reiterated that yesterday. So if it's a, a stronger-than-expected recovery, it's good. If it's a worse-than-expected recovery, you've got a backstop in the form of Jay Powell. So I'm still skeptical about what kind of pullback we can see for stock market investors. My big concern is the, the underlying economy here. But 
we'll, we'll reconvene on, the, on that conversation because I want to talk to you about Grubhub. There's deal making going on despite the concerns. Yeah, Grubhub had been rumored to be in talks with Uber, which the ride-sharing giant also owns Uber Eats, but that deal didn't happen. Instead, Grubhub, which also owns Seamless, popular in New York City, is merging with a company called Just Eat Takeaway based in Europe. So this is Just Eat Takeaway's first foray into the U.S. The good news for Grubhub is that they remain semi-independent. They're not part of the Uber juggernaut. But the problem, I think, for Uber investors is that competition doesn't decrease in the food delivery business because Just Eat Takeaway didn't have a U.S. presence. So all the concerns about Grubhub dealing with Uber as well as DoorDash and Postmates, that doesn't go away because you're not mm. removing a competitor from the market the way you would have if Uber and uh, uh, Grubhub had consolidated. Yes, no diversification of income here for Uber, but um, the challenge, of course, is that uh, when you're talking about this cross-Atlantic cross, um, deal, uh, competition authorities will be calmer about this deal, and that's the challenge. Paula Monica. Regulators will be happy at this Exactly. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Silence is violence is one of the slogans of the Black Lives Matter protests. And now it looks like U.S. shoppers agree. An Edelman survey found that 60% of Americans will buy or boycott a brand depending on how it responds to the protests. It also found that Americans want brands to act. 63% of Americans say a statement on equality that is not followed by concrete action is exploitative. Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman, and joins us now. Richard, great to have you on the show. I shouldn't be surprised by those statistics, but actually I am. The idea that people will actually take time to look at a brand and look what their message is and what their equality stats are and put their money where their mouth is, um, is good news to me. Look, Julia, the key change here is that uh, the risk reward for brands has fundamentally shifted. Mm. Um, it used to be that race was the third rail for marketers. Never talk about it. Now, by four to one, Americans say that uh, they'll put more trust in a brand, maybe than lose trust in a brand, if the brand acts. And that's the key point. We can't just communicate. We can't just put up ads. We have to have brands do something. For example, Ben & Jerry's uh, is employing um, people who have had misdemeanors and spend time uh, in prison. And that's an action. Uh, and similarly, Shea Moisture is putting money uh, towards um, Black-owned small business in a foundation. That's an action. We want brands to do something, not just talk about it. That hits the bottom line in terms of consumer behavior. What about workers? Because there's also a significant proportion in this survey of workers that are saying, look, if I don't agree with the ethics and, and the morals and the approach of, of a business, I'm not, I'm not going to work for them. This is critical, too. These are other stakeholders. So actually, um, the pyramid has flipped upside down, right. meaning that it used to be the pyramid of the elite. And now the people who work at the company have a voice and are using it. And in fact, they're voting with their feet. They're not going to work for companies that don't stand up and speak up on this all important issue. And it's more than 50 percent, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're Hispanic. Everyone wants to work for a decent company 
that educates, advocates, and inspires on racism. What about politics here? We can't escape the fact that it's an election year, that the president's potentially looking at an executive order to tackle some of these racial issues. What do the politics mean in terms of views on this? So by two to one, Republicans say that they'll put more trust in a brand that acts on racism by seven to one for Democrats. So mm. it seems to me a fairly cross the board uh, signal to brands that it's time that they take the torch. It used to be that CEOs would speak up, talk to their employees, and that was it. Now we need brands because brands have a special relationship with consumers. They inspire us, they show us the future, they give us hope, and that's the difference. It is a repetition that we have to have. It's not just a one-time statement. And then I also want brands to recognize their power in using small business supply chain, in making sure that um, they do um, things. Example, Unilever is uh, actually putting goods into a a drugstore, you know, a lot of the drugstores were, were affected um, in the protests uh, a week ago. And so, you know, for July 4th, Unilever is putting um, a drugstore to reopen with its products. That's hmm. smart. That's good business. Does it reach the boardroom? Does it touch efforts to raise some of the lowest paid workers for some of these businesses? Because what I still hear and read is deep skepticism that for all the push, all the change, all the action that we appear to be, to be beginning to see, it doesn't reach those two extremes of where the inequality exists. Julia, I think that this is a change moment um, because of COVID, because of unemployment, because of George Floyd, that abhorrent act. Um, and because we have um, political um, uh, strife. And so this is the turning point. And I think boards recognize that this is a major risk factor for companies and their brands if they don't act. You are starting to see boards push CEOs to take the chance. And in fact, the risk is much less of acting than not acting. That's the big shift. That's why our research is so profound. We need to persuade the CEOs that they must move forward on this issue. They have to fix their own house, they have to inspire, and they also have to fix their communities. And they have to pay real attention to that last point of building community capacity, putting their top execs into seats on the boards of local NGOs so that they can help deliver that last mile. and. and and also use their advertising power so that uh, there are black and Hispanic faces in the ads and that they are not just actors or athletes, that they are normal people living good lives and showing us that, in fact, we do have an America that we can believe in. Something to aspire to. Hope. Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman, sir, I hope you are right. Um, great to have you with us and thank you so much. It was a pivotal survey. All right, still to come on First Move. And speaking of hope, financial education as a way to provide equal opportunities for everyone. We speak to the CEO of Operation Hope. That's next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Changing the system starts with providing equal opportunities early on. Operation Hope is the largest nonprofit organization that supports financial inclusion here in the United States. It provides free services to young people on low and moderate income, like helping them start and grow a business, raise their credit score, even help buying a home. And it has big partners such as Bank of America and JP Morgan. John Hope Bryant is founder and CEO of Operation Hope. He's advised numerous White House administrations. He's calling now for both parties in Congress to step up, boost low-income families, introduce incentives to firms that provide work opportunities for young people from underserved communities, among many other things. And I'm excited to say John is now with us. John, fantastic to have you on the show. You are a busy man. That just scratches the service of what you've got going on. Put Operation Hope and your ambitions in your own words, please. Uh, our mission is to change the world and eradicate poverty as we know it in our lifetime. That's what probably were founded in, after the Rodney King riots in 1992. Uh, our mission is much more practical uh, now in the backdrop of COVID-19 and the national civil unrest. Uh, we, we desire to be, and we will be, America's financial coach, the Starbucks of financial inclusion, the Walmart of economic empowerment, the private banker to the working class and the struggling middle class. Julia, those, as you know, with too much month at the end of their money, which is most Americans. Seventy percent of all Americans uh, live from paycheck to paycheck before COVID-19. Uh, and so now uh, everybody's feeling the pain. Increasingly, the color, as I keep saying, is not black or white as in race or red or blue as in political party but the color green, uh, and we all want more of that. And a lot of our frustrations right now is because we, people don't have enough of it and they're stressed out about it. And this is a problem we can actually solve. I, I love that phrase. This is not about black or white. This is about green. I'm assuming you mean the color of US dollars and US money and then helping people <laughs> yes. accumulate wealth. But this is such an important point because Poverty in this country is vast and it's been exacerbated by COVID-19 and in many ways it's colorblind. There are a lot of poor people in this country of all colors. There are more poor white people in this country, Julia, than poor anybody else. The biggest recipient of transfer payments in this country, uh, public welfare and other, other things, are my white brothers and sisters, not African Americans, which is the perception in minorities. Uh, and this goes back to the Civil War when poor whites were brought here uh, from Europe uh, and they were treated just like blacks as indentured servants, just that whites were able to pay them by themselves out of servitude and blacks were, were essentially indentured servants for life. And this created the wealth gap we have today where 40 years ago, I worked my tail off, my ancestors did, and somebody else got the fruits of their labor, a reverse transfer of wealth. I worked hard, big, big man's house got bigger. Uh, so now you have less than 10% African Americans have less than 10% of that worth of their white counterparts working just as hard. And we also didn't get the memo on money. The Freedmen's Bank of 1865, which Abraham Lincoln created after the Civil War to teach free slaves about money, call it financial literacy today. So the reason I love math is it doesn't have an opinion. <laughs> and what we're talking about now is just math. It's just what happened. And we can, again, reverse that. Okay. There's so much in there. Let's talk about your plan for reversing that. It's a, it's a Marshall plan. You're saying it's something that's needed on broad scale. 
to raise the lowest income earners in this country and just give them a working wage effectively. But it goes way beyond that to incentivize getting workers into the workforce. Talk me through this, because I know you've presented this to, to politicians on both sides here. Yes, and I've also presented it to the White House. Uh, and there's some traction for it uh, broad, broadly and the private sector. Look, this we, America has not had a, a, a middle class wage increase or a working class wage increase effectively since the 70s. Uh, and so this is a way, a, a living wage for all is one of the attributes of it. Take the earned income tax credit uh, and basically let Main Street get a bonus for working, just like Wall Street. You work hard, not a giveaway program. You work hard, you play by the rules, you do the right things, and and you get a 20% boost in your annual uh, wage. So that takes, takes the poor and makes them the working class. It takes the working class and makes them the working middle class. It takes the middle class and makes them the real middle class with one parent working and one parent to actually raise those children at home. Uh, and we all would pay for this versus small being on the back of the of small businesses. So businesses are pushed back on an increase of wages because they say, I can't afford it. This would be burdened by all Americans, small tax increase, raising all wages. Uh, education for all groups. I mean, you cannot have a, a world-class nation uh, that has a high school education. I mean, it just doesn't work. Half of this country is high school educated. No wonder we have bias and racism and ignorance. Education banishes uh, ignorance and, uh, and discrimination in many places. A rubber band once expanded, never returned to its original size. You know that as being an international correspondent. So we have got to have K through college education, not K through, well, financial literacy for all. How can you be the largest economy in the world and not get people, give people the, the memo on money? Julia, people don't hate rich people. They hate a game system. They hate rich people till they become rich. <laughs> so we need to give everybody, once again, a shot. We see a lot of anger today. I mean, some would argue that anger got us to the point of seeing Donald Trump elected. It was a certain subset of angry people that felt like they didn't have a chance and they didn't have hope. And we see another subset of angry people today. And I think we have to separate 400 years of racial injustice from an underlying inequality problem that's creating anger. What do you make of what's going on today and, and the anger that we see? How does that need to be it's a, it's channeled? A, yeah, it's a tipping point, uh, Julia. And anger is not a strategy. And, and frustration is not a business plan. Uh, you can't be angry for a living. Anger doesn't pay a bill. So uh, if you look at this from the lens you just brilliantly articulated, uh, you know, really my white brothers and sisters, poor whites in the rural areas, uh, the Industrial Revolution walked away from them 60 years ago. We paid them no attention, including African-Americans. Dr. King was the only leader trying to get everybody together, and he was killed in 68 before his first march on the Puerto Rico's campaign. So in many ways, three and a half years ago, my poor white friends really rioted at the ballot box. Civil unrest at the ballot box. Throw the bums out, get somebody in there who will shake them up. Didn't even know who he was. Let's hire him, okay? But, but it was frustration, it was anger. It wasn't a strategy. Uh, I'm not saying it was good or bad, I'm just saying it was a reaction, not a response. The African-Americans and others uh, really had civil unrest and rioting in the streets. We respond differently, but it's the same thing. It's frustration. We can't handle another one of these moments, Julia. We're at a tipping point, an inflection point, and America is better than this. We reinvent ourselves every hundred years. It's about time for a software upgrade. I believe in a Marshall Plan, very much like after World War II. But we yeah. can channel all this frustration and negative energy into something positive, into something productive. 
Uh, and, and that's what my new Marshall Plan suggests, what Operation Hope is doing on the ground. Our website crashed three, years, three weeks ago because of all of, this, of, of the people trying to get our resources in 22 states and growing. But we are now expanding those resources with additional support. So I believe in rainbows after a storm. And this, is, this can be the rainbow after this storm. Yeah, I think you're aptly named Hope is what people need at this moment and an action plan to your point. I have about 20 seconds very quickly. What response have you had from the White House? Because I agree with you, change needs to happen now. Are you getting positive noises? I am getting positive noises, but the White House, any White House, only deal with three to five things at a time. I'm trying to get my <laughs> proposal up to one of those three to five things. Uh, so we need the, the public to sort of rally and Subpoena the White House and say, listen to what John Bryan's doing. We're, I am getting traction. I am getting support among staff. Uh, there's no one dis who disagrees with this. We just need to get this to the top of, of the, the inbox. Uh, the, um, D.C. focuses on the urgent. We, we've got to make the important feel urgent. That's the key here. We'll keep reiterating the message. Come back in a few weeks and we'll talk about progress. John, amazing to speak to you. John Hope Bryant of Operation Hope. So you're the best. Thank you. All right, more to come. Stay with us. We'll back up to this. Welcome back to First Move. One more look at what we're seeing in terms of price action here for U.S. markets. All the major averages suffering losses of over 2%, as you can see, taking back some of the recent bumper gains over the past few months. Boeing is actually the big loser in the Dow right now down some 7%. Some of the travel stocks that also have been rallying over recent weeks, losing a bit of steam here too. Economic damage caused by COVID-19, the leading concern here. And of course, we've had US jobless claims data rising by a further one and a half million people. The number of people getting benefits stubbornly over that 20 million people level. That said, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin saying today that the US cannot afford to shut the economy down once again. So we have to manage these rising cases as best we can. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chastley. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.